Today's Bible reading comes from 1 Corinthians chapter 12, verses 14 to 26. I will be reading from ESV. Feel free to read on the screen or on your devices or old school piece of paper. For the body does not consist of one member, but of many. If the foot should say, because I am not a hand, I do not belong to the body, that would not make it any less part of the body. And if the ear should say, because I am not an eye, I do not belong to the body, that would not make any less that would not make it any less part of the body. If the whole body were an eye, where would be the sense of hearing? If the whole body were an ear, where would the sense of smell? But as it is, God arranged the members of the body, each one of them as he chose. If all were a single member, where would the body be? As it is, there are many parts, yet one body. The eye cannot say to the hand, I have no need for you, nor again the head to the feet, I have no need for you. On the contrary, the parts of the body that seem to be weaker and indispensable, and on those parts of the body that we think less honorable, we bestow the greater honor. And our unpresentable parts are treated with greater modesty, which, which our more presentable parts do not require. But God has so composed the body, giving greater honor to the part that lacked it, that there may be no division, division in the body, but that the one member may, that the members may have the same care for one another. If one member suffers, all suffer together. If one member is honored, all rejoice together. Good evening, everybody. I am Pastor Brennan. I'm delighted to be bringing the message to you this evening. I'm going to pray, and then we're going to talk about what it means to belong to the family of God. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you so much that you've gathered us here as a body of your people. We pray you open our hearts to what you have to say tonight and open up your word to our hearts. And we pray that in the name of your son, Jesus Christ. Amen. So we've been going through in this evening series um, and discussing what it means to be a disciple and what disciples do, the fact that disciples give, disciples obey. And tonight we're talking about how disciples belong. And belong is an interesting word. It's got kind of a, a broad lexical range. It can mean quite a few things. Um, my car belongs to me because I have absolute ownership over it and I can decide what happens to it. If I owned a dog, it would belong to me, but not in the same way as the car. There's an implied level of treatment there. If I didn't feed that dog, I would very quickly lose it to the RSPCA and then it wouldn't belong to me anymore. My wife belongs to me, but not in the same way as a car or a pet. Um, her belonging to me is a description of one half of a relationship in which I also belong to her. And similar to the dog, if I did not feed her, she would be taken off me. Um, <laughs> and vice versa. And that, that mutual belonging has to be respected in both directions in a marriage, or it begins to warp and maybe collapse altogether. I don't belong to Australia, the country as such, but I belong to a group called the Australians, certainly. And belonging to that, in group, that group implies that I do certain things. I tell people g'day, I throw shrimps on barbies, um, I have strong opinions of whether the sausage goes on the onion or the onion on the sausage. Uh, all of these things are somewhat negotiable about my Australianness, though, and I can only lose my specific belonging to that group under extremely specific circumstances. I have to start 
also belonging to another group, let's say uh, Syrians, and then if I join ISIS and I start shooting at Australians and their allies, at that point Australia says, you know what, you no longer belong to the group of Australians. And there are things that I belong to that I cannot not belong to. I don't get that choice and neither does anyone else. I belong to the category of guys who are under five foot seven and there's nothing I can do about that. No amount of hanging upside down changes it. Um, I belong to the Cotton family, my family, in a way that uh, could be denied to me a little bit if I, if I push them away really hard, but in another way, it's, that's with me and I'm with them regardless of how much um, I displease them in some kind of scenario like that. And in a variety of ways, I belong to God. I am his creation and I belong to him by right that way. I'm saved by him and I belong to him by a grace uh, that is only possible because of his efforts in saving me. And I'm a disciple of the Lord Jesus by which I belong to him through a, a daily recommitment and a choice reaffirmed and reinforced by the work of the Holy Spirit in my life. And also a, a study a study of the ways that everyone belongs to God and to each other and to their country and their spouse and their church is a good one, a good investment of time to do and one I recommend. But for now, we have to ask, in what way does a disciple necessarily belong? And how does belonging define a disciple of Jesus? Because it's possible to be a saved, believing child of God without really being a disciple. By that I mean in Luke's gospel, we have the picture of Jesus hanging on the cross next to a thief, and the thief speaks to him and asks him to remember him when he comes into his kingdom, and Jesus tells him, this day you will be with me in paradise. That lifelong sinner became a saved child of God and a follower of Jesus in the moments before his death. Is it fair to call him a disciple of Jesus? Not really. A disciple is someone who learns a set of disciplines, skills, practices on how to conduct themselves. Children of God are made by him when he forgives their sin. Disciples of Jesus Christ are made by disciples of Jesus Christ. Thus, Jesus' command to go forth into the world making disciples of all nations. And this makes sense to us because we are social creatures in addition to being the individuals that we think of ourselves as most of the time. Part of what defines our lives as people is sliding back and forth on this uh, human interaction scale between feeling lonely, I want to spend time with people, and had enough of people, I'd rather spend time without them. And in spite of the, the corporate messaging that we get about defining ourselves by a personal style apart from everyone else, expressing our individualism, expressing our independence, we all crave belonging and crave it pretty strongly. A teenager who feels disconnected from their family is liable to take on entirely new ways of speaking and dressing and acting to belong to another group. A boy may suddenly start walking with a kind of a gangster roll of the shoulders because he identifies with that group and he would like to be part of it. A girl may decide to dress entirely and accessorize entirely in black. Whole generations have liked entire genres of music and then discovered only a few years later that that entire genre was garbage and it only had value because they were liking it together. Because it's not often about the music or about the studded black leather wristbands or the um, genuine soulful connection to African-American musical culture. It's almost always about belonging to a group and instinctively doing that and doing that thing that we need to do to belong to that group. And there's plenty of good reasons for this. 
Uh, one is that being alone wears you down and it makes you vulnerable to attack. We instinctively don't like being alone and not having a group to belong to. So by way of analogy, we can talk about the zebra. Zebra, which has been, I think, a lot of people's favorite animals at one point or another. Um, the black and white stripy horse, if you are unfamiliar. Zebras, the defining feature is their black and white stripes, which is kind of a weird thing for them to have. You would say, why is a zebra black and white striped? Instinctive response, camouflage, that's fine. But zebras live on the savanna, and the savanna is covered in this sort of golden grass in which the lions that are trying to eat them are camouflaged. Zebras are not particularly camouflaged to the environment they live in. Zebra camouflage is the color of zebras, and zebras alone. And that's an interesting fact that was discovered by accident, mostly by uh, zoologists tracking zebras and trying to study them. They'd try and track the lives of individual zebras and see how they changed and interacted over time. But they kept losing them because they'd run into the herd and come out the other side, and then they'd be looking around saying, where's our zebra? Because they all look extraordinarily similar. So the zoologists would say, okay, this is an easy problem. We'll creep up on the zebra we like, we'll paint a big red X on its backside, and then we will know which is our zebra, even when it runs into the herd and out the other side. And every time they would mark a zebra so it was visibly distinct for them to track, the lions would nail it. It's like the kiss of death. That is the end of that zebra. As soon as the lions are able to pick out that zebra from the herd and say, oh, that's a single individual zebra, they could organize a hunt around it and take it down, which must have been incredibly awkward for the zoologist who suggested that. For the zebra being part of the herd is life and safety, and standing alone gets you killed. Now, that's not a perfect analogy, and I don't want to take it too far. Uh, superficial things like tattoos and fashion sense aren't what makes a disciple of Jesus distinct from the world. It's the disciplines, it's the way of living like Jesus taught, which the world can look at and see and say there is something different about these people. It sets us apart from the world, but together as a body of people who belong to Jesus Christ and who share the trials of the world together. 1 Peter chapter 5 tells us to be alert and of sober mind because your enemy the devil prowls around like a roaring lion looking for someone to devour. Resist him, standing firm in the faith because you know that the family of believers throughout the world is undergoing the same kinds of suffering. Now the devil is the lion looking for someone to attack in this case. But enduring the world's challenges as part of the family of believers, that's just... What enables us to resist him, in fact? The challenges are part of life. But with a body of believers to belong to, with a worldwide body of believers to know we are part of and enduring together, then we're able to resist him. So we're much stronger and less vulnerable together with that group identity. And this is true in regards to spiritual threats. Certainly, the devil's always going to target individuals who have weaker support around them. He's a clever lion, he knows what he's doing, and he's been doing it for a long time. But it's also true from a, a purely social point of view. If you're the only Christian that you know at college or university, or the, or the uh, only Christian among your group of friends, um, it becomes hard to continue living a Christian life, because humans are designed to blend to each other. We influence each other. There's an old saying that suggests that you are the average of your five closest friends. And that tends to be pretty true. I know it is in my case, I think, because I know I've got some pretty mellow friends, but I also have some fairly crazy friends. Um, 
whose stories I will save for other times. But, um, and I guess I'm kind of halfway between that, and that works. But I know for a fact that for my crazy friends, I am their mellow friend. And their crazy friends are so crazy, I could not be friends with them. And so they're the average of their friends as well. The point is that we tend to smooth out according to the people that we keep around us and invest ourselves in, and who invest themselves in us. And a community of God's people belongs, uh, or to belong to rather, is, is the thing that we use to offset that. If you have that going, if you're engaged, if you have a connect group, uh, if you're in that community of God's people, it's the place you can keep going back to and will keep going back to that surrounds you with the right kind of influences, people who are seeking after the heart of God, who are encouraging you, who you can admire, who you can follow. And that's how Christians can exist in a world at all that is so hostile to the gospel they follow. And so belonging to that faith community, that community of believers that protects us from spiritual threats, it guards us against the kind of the social erosion that can happen in the life of a believer living alone in the world. It's also the model we get for spiritual instruction. Jesus himself had a kind of a stratified teaching model. He seemed to spend more time than any of the other apostles talking to Peter specifically. And then there was sort of inner circle of uh, Peter, James, and John. And then beyond that, there was the 12, the, the day in, day out apostles he spent most of his time with. And then outside of that, there seems to be this bigger group, the 72, that gets sent out at one point in the Gospels as well. That's um, six individuals for every 12 of the 12 apostles. And they go out and they do his work in the world. And then beyond that, there's the sense that there's this general masses of half-committed disciples and people hanging on, following along, trying to gain or learn something. Now, there's undeniable value to the, the personalized individual instruction that um, you get in a one-on-one -on -one kind of capacity or a very small group capacity, that mentorship. But the idea of a, a community of many believers, that's just as indispensable if those believers are going to grow. Most of the New Testament is instructional letters to churches, to bodies of God's people. And never do they ever say, uh, break up into smaller units, there's just too many of you in that place. Um, they do, what they definitely do say is do not forsake the gathering of yourself together to encourage one another, to bear up one another's burdens, to show the world that you are followers of Jesus by how you love one another. And as the 12 around Jesus listen to his word together, uh, so a community of believers gathers around the word of God and seeks to know it better as well. So there's defense from spiritual attack, um, from the erosion of the world, there's this compounding effect of, of seeking to grow together to become more Christ-like. And not to undersell it, but it's worth saying that we have a lot to offer each other in a community like this. Each person in a church has something of specific value that God's given them to bring to the people of God. Thus Paul's analogy of uh, some as hands and some as eyes and some as feet, but each contributing to the body, each having a part and a role to play, and each part adding up together into something greater than simply the sum of those parts. And each part, when it succeeds, being celebrated by all the other parts, and all the parts suffering when one part suffers. A church... A faith community like this is a place where disciples come together and they practice the art of being a follower of Jesus together, each sharpening each other as iron sharpens iron, each belonging in a little part to each other in the same community. 
But we don't just belong to a church community in the same way that a car belongs in a garage. Um, We're not just intending to passively soak up the benefits from being in a church. Those benefits are generated by people contributing to the church, by uh, putting themselves into it, investing into it with their time and their energy and their prayer and their effort. And you can belong to a church and not participate in it. That can be done, it often is done, but to do so is to sort of drift along under the cover of the benefits provided by those who do participate, those who do give and those who do serve and those who uh, operate in that general spirit of obedience and brotherliness and love that make a church a worthwhile place to go in the world. So what does belonging entail that we should do? How do we not just coast along passively but contribute actively? to the action of belonging to a community of believers like this one. Well, for a start, anything that we do as individual believers has a corporate dimension alongside it that can be done with the body of God's people. Being a disciple means that you read God's word. Belonging to God's people means that you read and explore God's word together. It's important to pray alone. It's important also to pray together. You seek his will for your life and you attempt to live the life with integrity that God has placed before you, but also as part of a body of his people, you seek together the will he has for you collectively as a church and the direction and the impact that your church should have in the world as God would have it. We're called to practice charity and generosity in our lives, but we're called likewise to give some portion of our income to our church, to our local community. The early church had families living together, um, sharing buildings, completely pooling the resources they had. They called it having all things in common. Today we live in a wealth and comfort that would make French kings jealous. But, um, and it's right that we should take, take thoughtful responsibility for that and use some of that for charity and some for our family's interest and even for that matter a portion on what makes us happy. But a portion of those earnings has a corporate believer's purpose as well. And so giving and being generous becomes a corporate activity, something we do in the group that we belong to, in the group of God's believers that we belong to. And naturally, there are things that can only be done in collaboration with believers, in a body of belonging believers. Only the most fantastically wealthy believers can fund private mission trips of any size or do disaster aid on their own, but any decent church can muster something to contribute to a greater church effort to something like that. It's the parent's job first and foremost before anyone else to disciple their children, but a community ministry like youth and like kids ministry, like kids church, takes some of the pressure off the parents to do this. It means the parents aren't doing it alone and it multiplies the effects that the parents already invest in their children. And for that matter, the belonging nature of a Christian community is built up from childhood for those children in that case. And finally, as Paul describes with his analogy of those parts of the body, uh, those things that make us individuals, the excesses of talent or personality, are, are very much wasted if they're not employed in the body of God's people. In the context of the rest of the chapter of, of uh, 12 of 1 Corinthians, Paul is talking about spiritual gifts. Uh, he lists, uh, gives a list of the manifestation of skill and miraculous powers which the early churches were manifesting in great number that were a sign of the spirit working in them, the healing, the prophecy, the tongues, uh, more mundane things like teaching, um, all exhaustive 
studies of these terms and what they mean specifically, that's valuable in their own right. But the general thrust of this idea is that disciples should belong to their community of believers. And it doesn't require a specific supernatural gift to do so. We are not required to look for our singular spiritual gifting and then once we find it, employ that exclusively in, uh, in our service in our community of God. It's the whole broad spread of participation that we are called to do in the body of God's believers. Attending ministries that are relevant to you and helping provide ministries that are relevant to others. There are some specialized things that only some folk can do and all some folk are gifted for, obviously. Uh, don't volunteer to help catering if you habitually burn your own food, for example. But most things that can be done in a church and can be done as part of ministries are pretty straightforward and you learn what you need to by participating. Kids' ministry requires a willingness to be friendly and a little bit of patience, and everything else you get the joy of learning on the job. Youth ministry pretty much likewise. There's a cleaning roster if you can push a vacuum once every three months. These do not require a call beyond the general one to participate in the church and belong with God's people. And honestly, um, we don't even need a special conviction to know we should do those things. We tend to know if we are pouring ourselves into the ministry of our church or if we're just coasting along and benefiting from it. Really, the question is this. How do you think about your church? Because we don't think about our family as a group of people that we live with. We think of them as family, as their own category. Uh, a group of people who um, are a part of us in some way and losing a member of your family is traumatic because it's losing a part of yourself. And your church should be in a similar category. Not just a place you go and not even just a group of people to whom uh, you visit or to whom you have a, a sense of vague belonging, but a group of people with whom you share your life and who you are invested. Who it would greatly pain you to see broken up and who it would be a little traumatic for you to leave. That's the level of investment that Paul is talking about when he tells people to call each other brothers and sisters and when he identifies them as parts of the same body. He uses that analogy, which is kind of meant to be funny the way he talks about it, because it's absurd the idea that a part of the body would just sort of detach and run off and say, I don't need the rest of you. Because it's a joke that a part of a body would be able to survive without the rest, that a foot could just take off and live a life of its own. And the idea that parts of the church can just fragment, that we can just say, I don't actually need a body of God's believers, is a joke. It's on the level of a joke. It's about love. And everyone should love their family, everyone should love their friends, but your church community is the first stop in the business of being uncommonly loving in the world. And it's a fundament of discipleship. Paul says that he can speak in the tongues of men and angels all day long, but without love, he is just a clanging symbol. But it's here, under a roof like this one, that people who love Jesus become most obviously people unlike others in the world. The world needs to be able to see the love that we have for each other by how we treat each other and by how we live out his gospel in our lives together. And so tonight we're going to pray that our gracious Father shows us what we need to do to be better disciples in our own lives, but also what we owe to each other and what we can do in belonging to the same body, what we can do better still. So let's pray.
Father God, you've saved us and delivered us and drawn us to yourself, and we thank you. You've placed us here in a body of believers to worship you and pursue your ways. And we thank you, God, for all this. And we ask you now to help us to be not just the individuals you want us to be, but to be the collected people that you want us to be. Belonging together in this place, Lord. Accountable to one another, teaching and teachable and encouraging one another. Each of us playing our part to make something greater than the sum of those parts. Help us to never forget our duties to each other, Lord. And guide us and challenge us to grow in how we contribute to our faith community here at Sunnybank, just as you grow us in every aspect of our walk in discipleship with you. And we ask this in Jesus' precious name. Amen.